Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I am the host of the podcast that's titled Revolution Z. This is our 174th episode, and it's the fifth in a sequence that's titled Transition. The title of this entry in particular is Getting to Transition by Being Strategic. But this episode is a bit unlike the prior four transition episodes. The others were largely drafts of potential chapters that I read aloud. This time, there is no draft, and they won't be for some time. This is more, well, rumination hoping to eventually engender a draft. The topic is basically fighting to get to a point where our movements are collectively in position to not only continue the fight against old circumstances, but to also and mainly undertake the tasks of creating new circumstances. The purpose of this episode, then, is to begin addressing broad issues of what can hopefully get morphed into shared strategic insights for current and near-term activism and organizing, and basically for up until we have sufficient influence to be creating the new world. The focus of the transition sequence of Revolution Z is, therefore, not just reform, but revolution. Okay, so what is revolution? For me, the way I think of it, and I think it makes sense, is that revolution is when you fundamentally change the defining features of some core critical aspect of society. It's not violence. It's not speedy. It's not upheaval that is tumultuous. It may be all those things in certain cases, or it may not be. That's not what defines revolution. Revolution is going from one set of defining institutions to another set of defining institutions. Who makes revolution? Well, about this there's controversy. So, for example, some would say revolution is about a fundamental change in the economy. And the sector or the people who make that change who lead in that change, who drive that change, are workers, those who are most fundamentally oppressed by economic relations. Others might say something very similar, almost worded the same, except switch, switch gears, switch focus. So in other words, people might say, those who make revolution are those who are most oppressed by cultural and community relations. So, for example, in the United States, maybe blacks and Latinx. The idea here is that the revolution is a change, a fundamental change in the defining relations of communities, of cultural intersections. Another group might say, wait a minute, revolution is about kinship. It's about the relations between men and women and of sexuality and of nurturance and the, and the like, and is made by those constituencies, those groups that are most oppressed by those relations, women, gays, trans, and various other sectors who are impacted by that part of society in the most detrimental way. And somebody might come along and say, well, wait a minute, revolution is a fundamental change in the political system, in the state, in the government, and it's made basically by those who are anti-authoritarian. All right, the way we defined revolution, it would be true in my eyes if 
there was a fundamental change in any of those domains, it would be a revolutionary event. But you have to think a little further. Is there likely to be a fundamental change in any of those areas if the other areas are just dormant, are not being addressed? If the other constituencies are feeling the most, is there a political revolution? Is there a cultural revolution? Is there a kinship revolution? Is there an economic revolution? If only being defined in terms of that area is critical and not other areas. I think the answer to that is no, and this is a big strategic question. Honestly, if you think, for example, that a particular sector of the population, let's call it sector for generality, a particular sector of the population is such, its position is such, its circumstances are such, its level of pain and suffering is such, its prospects are such, that it can lead a fundamental change in the society for the better, then it makes sense that you sort of elevate organizing that sector, mobilizing that sector, addressing that sector's needs to a priority position. For me, that argument makes sense except for one thing. There isn't one area that is predominant. For me, economics, cultural community, kinship, and polity are all of fundamental importance. The institutions of each have implications that spread beyond their own definition into the whole society. The sectors, again, to use that word, of people most oppressed by each, most delimited by each, are essential not only to changing the the particulars of the that area, that one area, let's say kinship or culture, community, ethnicity, race, or the state or the economy, but to all areas. And so what emerges from this kind of perception is a broad intersectional approach that says that class, race, ethnicity also in certain countries, communities, cultural communities of various kinds of definition in certain countries, uh, uh, political constituencies, and those constituencies most affected by and constrained by kinship relations, the young, the elderly, and women, and gay, and trans, and so on. And so what emerges from this kind of picture is that a strategy to fundamentally transform society is not about fundamentally transforming just one key sector. One problem with that is that the other sectors will tend to pull it back. Uh, even, even after attaining change in the one key sector, the other sectors, unchanged, will tend to reproduce the old ways. A second problem, even more, more fundamental or more, more um, determinative of what we should be doing, is that you can't, I don't think, make fundamental change in one area by focusing only on that one area. To make fundamental change in any of these areas, you need to address the, the constituencies across the board, across all the areas. Okay, so that sets a kind of a context for beginning to think about strategy. Strategy needs to uh, address class, race, ethnicity, gender, 
sexuality, and uh, political position, let's call it. It needs to somehow, and this is a big question, somehow address all those, address the areas that sort of priority concern each of those, and somehow respect the, the dignity and the leadership of each primarily affected group in its own realm, and yet combine their strengths, combine and multiply their strengths. That's the kind of, of strategic uh, agenda, I suppose you could say, um, that's very basic and that I think makes sense. As we're thinking about strategy, it makes sense to have that in mind. Okay, what are the steps involved in revolution? Well, what are the steps involved in change? Change means winning changes in the current situation. Those are called reforms. Changes in the current situation that are less than a fundamental change in the defining relations are reforms. But that doesn't mean that they're unworthy or worthless. Such changes better people's lives, on the one hand, which gives them intrinsic worth, no matter how one pursues them, but also such changes, reforms, are part of a process by which people develop consciousness, become united, develop organization, move on to larger and larger focuses and changes. And that's the difference between reform and reformism, uh, which is another or a second key insight, I think, that bears upon strategy. Reform is fighting for a change. And indeed, one could fight for that change and that change alone. One could fight for that change as an end in itself. So let's say we're fighting for a higher minimum wage. We fight for the higher minimum wage. If we win the higher minimum wage or when we win the higher minimum wage, we essentially go home. We've won. That's the end. That's one approach to reform. Whether the reform is about wages or it's about uh, living conditions or it's about pollution or it's whatever it's about. Another approach to reform is different. It says, basically, the task in fighting for a reform is in part winning what you are seeking. Absolutely. But another part of the task is increasing strength, increasing focus, increasing consciousness, increasing means of, of, of battling that are at one's disposal so that you can, in fact, fight for more. So the idea is you pursue a change, let's say, to use the same example, a higher minimum wage, but in the act of doing it, you are simultaneously attempting to prepare to fight for more, to fight for still higher wages, or to fight literally in time, for a different approach to what determines what wages people should get. So you're building awareness that goes beyond the immediate, let's call it, demand. You're building awareness that goes into strategy. You're building awareness that begins to surface demands, goals, aims that go well beyond 
the immediate thing that you're trying to win. Indeed, they might even, your rhetoric, your discussion, your organizing, your way of talking, your way of especially building lasting structures is oriented toward the ultimate goal, not reform, but revolution. Okay, another possible insight, I think. Suppose we look at the path or the trajectory of change, if you will, from where we are to where we want to go. Part of it, part of what's going on is we're contesting the powers that be. Part of what's going on, a big part of what's going on, is that we're fighting against existing institutions, existing powers, to win changes in a trajectory that finally arrives at another priority, constructing the new society. Now, we might even be doing elements of that right from the beginning. We might, while contesting the state, while contesting corporations, while contesting uh, existing familial relations and kinship, while contesting existing structures, we might also be trying to plant the seeds of the future and the present. We might be making experiments. We might be making institutions, small ones at first, which reflect what we hope to win in the long run. But for the most part, for a long time, the focus around which our activity hinges is contesting the powers that be, contesting current relations. And then we get to a point, and this is the difference between what I'm calling the strategic period, first period, and then the transitional second period, we get to a point where we have enough influence, we have enough say, we have enough power. So while we're still fighting, you know, residual elements of the past, we are literally prioritizing creating the future. Another insight I think that's relevant None of these are rocket science. None of this is all that particularly difficult or wise or anything of the sort. But I do think it's all consequential. Um, So another thing that's consequential is the difference between tactics and strategy. Tactics are all kinds of of, uh, activities that rallies, marches, boycotts, blockades, strikes, occupations all kinds of things that we can think of that are more or less contained. There are things that we do and we string them together to try and win, to try and make changes. Strategy is something a bit different. It's an overarching conception of how we string tactics together, of what is our priority in stringing tactics together, of how we gauge our success, our relative success or failure when using tactics. That's what strategy is about. So this episode begins our discussion of of strategy. In this period, this period before we are really literally building a new society, I think it may be useful to see three moments of activity, let's call it, or three forms of activity. Consciousness raising, commitment building, and perhaps power building, and actually contesting. So consciousness raising is literally reaching out and trying to increase the number of people who have attitudes, beliefs, even habits 
that are attuned to winning change. It is increasing the, the numbers on our side, so to speak. Commitment building is, with those people on our side, increasing the degree of commitment and increasing the capacity to exercise power and influence. So it includes building organization. It includes um, creating ties that are of mutual aid and support. It includes finding ways to have efforts in one domain of life, say kinship, and in another domain of life, say the economy, be mutually supportive, be constructive of each other's ends. That's the kind of of thing that I want to call commitment building after or on top of or in addition to consciousness raising, which is reaching out to new audiences and seeking to bring them in. And then there's actually contesting. That is to say, we use our numbers, which we're constantly trying to grow, and we use our strength, our commitment, and our our structures for fighting, and we contest the powers that be to win changes. I think those three things all occur. They, at the beginning, there's probably needs to be more consciousness raising to get numbers. Uh, then commitment building and, and power building becomes uh, uh, very, very important, central. It still adds to numbers because as we demonstrate our capacity, numbers increase. So all of them are going on all the time. And contesting begins and becomes more and more active and central as we have numbers and we have means to contest. So we're assembling support, we're developing its force, including sustained organization, and, when, and then we're utilizing its force. Another strategic insight, I guess you might say, or observation, is that there are two kinds of activity in one sense. There's mobilizing. Mobilizing is when we take, we, we address uh, people who are basically on our side and provide some activity that we are mobilizing them for. It could be a march, it could be a even a teach-in, it could be a, a, a strike, whatever it is, we're, we're essentially trying to bring out our, our community to participate in it. And then there's organizing. And organizing, I think, is something different and more complicated, I suppose. It, it's the things that I was mentioning before. It, it's, it's reaching out to people who don't yet agree with us, they might be sympathetic, but they're not really aboard, or to people who disagree with us and trying to grow our ranks. Organizing is reaching out and growing ranks, and organizing is also uh, doing things, conducting ourselves in ways to increase our force, to, to increase our means to contest, to mobilize, basically. So how do we assess what we're doing along the way? And this, I think, is, is, is quite important. We have a tendency, I think, often, maybe, if I'm right, to do this 
incorrectly or incompletely might be a better term for it. Suppose we're going to hold a demonstration and we're going to uh, shut down a meeting, let's say. And so we organize, we're mobilizing our constituencies. We might be doing a little bit of organizing in the sense of reaching out to new constituencies, but we also are explicitly trying to mobilize those who are on the side of the kind of change that we're seeking when we close the meeting. Um, let's say we're closing a meeting of Amazon or we're closing a meeting of the World Trade Organization or what have you. Uh, and we're blocking the Pentagon. Uh, it could be at any scale. So we're we're mobilizing, and we we conduct our our event. Let's call it. We conduct our activity, and then after it's over, we're trying to assess it. And I think there's a tendency to assess it in terms overwhelmingly of the actual demand or the actual actions, uh, immediate short-term goals. So if the idea is to shut down a meeting, we assess it by saying, did we or did we not shut down the meeting? If the point of it was to actually put pressure on to win a demand, we assess it only in terms of, did it contribute pressure to winning the demand or even outright win the demand? But where we miss a little bit is I think we miss that every action we take can impact consciousness raising and commitment building and contesting, not just one or the other. And so if we hold a rally or we hold a demonstration or we engage in an activity like, say, a picket or a strike or what have you, part of what we are doing is indeed the very specific stated immediate aim of the activity. But part of what we're doing is communicating with the broader public, communicating with other people in the left elsewhere, communicating widely by our example and by our words and by our actions with others beyond our immediate circumstances. And to judge what we're doing means judging all of that, means assessing all of that. So, you know, if we, if we block a building and we, and we keep people out, like we said we wanted to, but our action is such that it doesn't communicate beyond our immediate environment, or even worse, it has an effect that puts people off, that, that doesn't grow our ranks, that doesn't increase our commitment, and so on. Then, then the fact that it, that it accomplished its immediate aim, shutting down the building, while nice, does in no way override everything else. The action might be a failure because of those broader implications. Or take it the other way. We are trying to, let's make it the same thing, blockade and, and shut off access to a meeting. And, and we fail we get routed or there is some way that the, you know, that the meeting goers find around what we're doing. But in any event, we don't block the event. However, our actions and our approach to them and our rhetoric, our discussion of what we're doing and our, our, our communication about it are quite effective in raising consciousness in bringing new people into accord with, into interest in, and even joining our movements. 
or they we we conduct ourselves in such a way and we carry out what we're doing in such a way that even though we didn't succeed in the present we did build means to do better in the future that too is a plus so success and failure are 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 much more complex than just did we accomplish an immediate claimed goal that's part of it but only a part of it and sometimes not even the main part of it what about demands then demands for minimum wage for accountability in a workplace say or in government for that matter for a new electoral approach for affirmative action for ranked voting for investments for peace for an end to war Demands play the role of communicating desires more widely than just ourselves. We know what we want. Making a demand um, evidences what we want, not only to those we're demanding it from, but more widely. So demands are certainly important. And it's important that those demands not just express our desires, but communicate with those broader audiences. We don't need the demand to communicate with ourselves. We who are making the demand already have the demand. We need the demand in order to communicate with those who are not present at the activity, who are not part of the movement. That's, that's where our language and our formulation and our behavior choices uh, have the most impact, have the most importance in a very real sense. Getting back to reform and radical reform, let's call it, or revolutionary reform, whatever words you use, the difference between seeking an end, and that's it, and seeking an end, but as part of a process that continues. So, we already talked about minimum wage. You can seek it and go home, and you can seek it with a rhetoric that focuses on it, that says, you know, $15 an hour or whatever it is that you're fighting for, man, that's great. That's what we want. That's the goal, $15 an hour or bust. Or you can formulate it as $15 an hour is a step up from where we are, but it is not our ultimate aim. What we ultimately want is, and then you could express what you ultimately want, I would say equitable remuneration. Um, But in any event, you, you you say what it is, and in the process of fighting for that minimum wage, you're, you're trying to organize and mobilize and impact outcomes in a manner which causes all those involved, and some who are not involved, but who may become involved, to next seek $20 an hour, or $25 an hour, or whatever it turns out to be. Same thing for accountability. Let's say you're in a workplace and you're asking for accountability from some sector of people. Let's say the immediate managers. Or you're uh, looking for accountability uh, from uh, political figures and so on. Probably it's of a limited sort in the short run. Uh, But that doesn't mean that when you're organizing for it, you can't talk about your longer run aims and aspirations and you can't begin to prepare the way to fight for more. Same thing for basically anything else that you, 
that you demand in the short run. There's a short run demand. There's a long run vision uh, that you can begin to advocate and promote and longer run than short uh, goals, intermediate goals that, that you can fight for after you win the immediate gain. Back to focus again. If we, if we say that in order to win fundamental change, revolutionary change, in pers- any defining area of life, you need to address it in all areas of life, then that means that in the act of pursuing whatever it is, minimum wage, accountability, affirmative action, ranked voting, investments, peace, whatever it is, in the act of doing that, it is a better, we we are doing better if we are bringing attention to all centrally important areas of life and we are building connections between people oppressed by those areas of life, not causing them to uh, compete with one another or to denigrate one another, but instead causing them to see one another as part and parcel of a big struggle for fundamental change across all areas of life. And there's a tool that has been used in strategy historically uh, called a coalition. And a coalition, I think it's important to, to understand as it's, it's part of what you can utilize in the course of struggles and in the, as part of strategy. But I don't think it's the only possibility. So a coalition is a group, let's say, of uh, movements and projects and maybe organizations, each of which has a particular focus and agenda, more or less broad, but who come together, despite even differences, who come together around one particular focus. So let's say a coalition against global warming. Now, the motivation is obvious in that case. Global warming is a catastrophe for everyone. It threatens life on the planet. So different organizations and movements with different agendas, let's say an agenda around trans rights or an agenda around feminist priorities or around anti-racism or around class issues, economic income, and so on. These various approaches can come together in a coalition. And when they do that, what they're saying is, okay, for this particular issue, we will all contribute. So for global warming, we will all contribute. Or let's say the United States goes to war with, I don't know, Venezuela. And so to stop that war, we will all join a coalition and contribute to it. We'll maintain everything that we've been doing other than that. And we will not particularly relate to each other about anything else. But we will go to shared events and mobilize for shared events and so on around the, the coalition focus. I think that that's a, a, an approach that has benefits but doesn't really get to what's needed. What's needed isn't that an anti-war movement and an anti-racist movement and a feminist movement and an anti-authoritarian movement and a, uh, uh, a global warming movement and then go on and on to smaller movements, each are willing to 
get behind a particular priority without any other attention to each other. I don't think that's ultimately what's needed. I think ultimately what's needed is that all these different prioritizations need to see each other as part of a big struggle and as, in fact, taking leadership from one another. So, for example, if you have a movement around pollution and around global warming, and you obviously also have a movement around gender issues and uh, sexuality and maybe familial issues and feminist issues, the, the, the real gain would be if the ecology-oriented movement takes leadership from the other around the issues that the other prioritizes. And that the other, the, 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 the feminist movement, takes, takes leadership from the ecology movement around ecology issues. And both see themselves as part of something bigger than either. So I want to call that bigger thing a block. And I want to say maybe this should be a component of strategy too. The component here is that single issue or, you know, by issue, whatever, but, but uh, sharply focused movements, organizations, and projects should all become part of something bigger than any of them. Let's call it a revolutionary block. And the revolutionary block as a whole has a, has a, a program. First of all, it combines all of those movements and projects and uh, organizations, including all of their differences, and they will have differences. But it's all part of a block in the same way that everybody's going to be part of a new society. It's all part of this one big thing. But what it, what it does is each component accepts that while it argues for what it believes and while it continues to pursue its own agendas, in the block, it follows the lead, it supports the, the program that emerges from the constituencies that are most affected and most focused on and most invested in developing the best possible program around different things. So the block has a program around ecology, around economy, around polity, around kinship, around race, and so on. And the program of the block comes from the parts of the block, the organizations, the movements, the projects in it, which focus on the the area of that program. I hope that's clear. I can't make it too much clearer. After all, it's an idea that's uh, in formation. It'll probably get altered and uh, refined and so on, assuming it's it's uh, used at all. All right, so we've, we've gone a ways into various issues that come up regarding strategy. So as to not go on forever, I didn't offer lots of examples of each. You could do that. And lots of examples of, you know, how they play out. Um, it's important to think that through, but I at least hope I offered some ideas for what should or could be thought about. But now what about, I want to bring up one last thing. What about historical examples? That is, what about in order to inform an unfolding strategic understanding that might be shared widely, what about looking at historical examples 
of revolutionary efforts, either successes or failures, to try and tease out lessons that are relevant to us. Well, on the one hand, that's obviously a good thing to do. There are experiences, and uh, they've done things and explored circumstances, and we can look at what occurred and what the the formulations were and what the results were, and we can try and tease out lessons. But there is a pitfall, and the pitfall is pretty serious, I think. The pitfall is that lots of people look at the past before looking at it in context of trying to get a shared strategy and trying to get a shared approach and so on, trying to create a revolutionary block, let's say. And they identify with certain things. They might identify with the Russian Revolution or the Chinese Revolution or with a particular set of, of people and their writings and so on. And in my experience, it turns out that those identifications can derail a discussion from being based on evidence and experience and calm assessment of possibilities and likelihoods and so on, to being a matter of defending and or being attacked because of some allegiance to something in the past. I find that people can talk about the future and can talk about the present better, oddly, or at least with less likelihood of, call it sectarian, call it uh, inflexible, call it overly passionate attachment to views precluding assessing possibilities. So my own inclination is, and I got to be clear about this, you know, uh, I spent a long time looking at exactly historical examples, looking at uh, you know, the Russian experience, the Cuban experience, the Chinese experience, more recent experiences in other places in the world, looking at writings by various people in the past and so on. And I'm not posing that people shouldn't do that. I think it's a fine thing to do, and it can lead to important insights. But I think that arguing about or even discussing in a group those past phenomena might not be so wise because it tends to derail reason and elevate a kind of defensive passion, I suppose. So I don't know this for a fact. It's just my, it's my feeling. It's certainly been the case for me personally. I mean, I've been able to sit down with somebody who has allegiances that I think are off the wall, let's say. And yet, if we're talking about the present, we can talk quite constructively and capably and easily. But if we start, if we turn the discussion to, you know, what happened in 1917 or something like that, then it might just fall apart. And so I guess the upshot of this and the upshot of this whole episode is strategy is tricky the left arriving at a shared strategy to go with a shared vision is an important thing because it can fuel solidarity and it can inform choices, etc., etc. It's obviously why it would be important. Think of a, I mean, you might think this is silly, but think of a sports team 
that's following two different strategies. Think of a, you know, anything. Think of a, an attempt to build something, a, a skyscraper. And there's two different agendas being pursued simultaneously. Now, you can almost pursue multiple agendas in, in the strategic case, but certainly marshalling a lot of force, maybe even most of your force, behind one is going to be better if that one is well chosen. So I think sharing, having arriving at a shared vision uh, and a shared strategy for how to, how to uh, attain it is a sensible thing to do. And in that context, uh, discussing the, the, the kinds of phases of activism and revolution and organizing, the issues of reform and reformism, the issues of tactics and strategy, how we assess what we're doing in light of not only the immediate aim, but the broader implications, the issues of organizing and mobilizing, the role of demands, the role of tactics, what our focus should be, how broad, the idea of maybe a block, and, you know, maybe how we usher in discussions of historical examples when they seem not to yield real debate and real dialogue and really listening to one another, but a degree of defensiveness. Anyway, I hope some of those ideas are useful. I hope that uh, people will maybe write me and, and uh, suggest anything about them. Uh, for myself, the question is, how do I incorporate all this kind of stuff and other stuff that is bound to emerge in coming discussions into probably a, a, a few chapters uh, leading toward addressing transition, which is uh, another issue. And that said... This is Mike Albert, signing off until next time for Revolution Z.